0: Welcome to our Beyond the Scalpel podcast. Uh, for today's episode, we have Aryo Hushpin, who's the CEO and founder of Prolenium. This is a Canadian aesthetic medical device company that specializes in dermal fillers. I've known Aryo for a long time, and in fact, we grew up in the same community. And uh, I thought he'd be a great guest to talk about the challenges he faced in creating such a successful company and where he sees the whole aesthetic market going. So enjoy this conversation. Uh, I think it was a lot of fun and I certainly enjoyed it. Ario, welcome and thank you so much for joining us with this very first podcast.
1: Thank you. Um, you're making me blush. You know. Um, <laughs> thank you very much for the kind introduction. I appreciate. And I, I really appreciate you guys having me um, on the podcast. It's exciting. And I mean, our, Dr. Yazdani and I have, have <laughs> yeah. uh, and I've known wow. each other for a long time, so it's it's a real pleasure.
0: Well, that, that's you know, that's also another reason that I I really wanted to have you as a first guest, as you and I have a long history. We actually um, come from the same community, really. Uh, Both of us are children of Iranian immigrants who uh, fled Iran uh, because of religious persecution and um, we grew up in the Toronto area. You grew up in Richmond Hill, I grew up in Newmarket, and so we we really kind of had somewhat parallel upbringings and so I, I think it's great I've watched you for so long get to where you are.
1: I wasn't as good as as good of a student as you and your brother, but uh, yeah, very similar upbringings. yeah, but you far exceeded that. Um, yeah. You know, we kind of, like you said, we had very similar um, upbringings. You know, my my parents moved to uh, Canada when I was about six months old. Um, and you know, we kind of came here to this diaspora community of all these other Baha'i Persians that had moved to um, you know, Toronto and the kind of uh, suburbs of Toronto. so, um, we we had very similar kind of lives and upbringings. Um, so I, I pretty much grew up in Canada. I, I was in Richmond Hill my whole life. Um, and uh, you know I, I I consider myself you know Persian in a sense like culturally, but um, you know I, I'm Canadian definitely because I've just been here forever. Um, so uh, and I, and I obviously love Canada and and love the opportunities that it's given me um, in terms of you know, my business and you know for, Um, for my children and everything that it can give us, which, you know, unfortunately my home country uh, couldn't, so. All right, your
0: your story is so cool. I mean, I I can't really think of someone that's had a similar success story than you have in the sense that really you you came into this industry when you were in your mid-20s. You weren't a provider or practitioner uh, which is really kind of one, one entry into this, this whole world as people who start off as practitioners and succeed. And, and it seems like the other common entry is someone who's an executive or um, you know, uh, someone who's, who's done well in another company and then branches out. You are neither of those really. You, you are a guy who in your twenties had a dream about <laughs> building your own company and getting into this industry and I love it. I think it's a great story. But in some sense, don't you think it's kind of a story of 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 someone who started out as an outsider, and got in yeah. the industry against a lot of obstacles.
1: Uh, uh, yeah, hundred percent. I mean, um, you hit the you hit the nail on the head. And I think again, going back to this, the you know, the idea that you know we're immigrants—not the idea, but the fact that we're immigrants—I think. You know, you have to kind of you don't have the network and you don't know the people that, you know, you can kind of get a job or you can ask your dad to help you with somebody he knows. I mean, um, so you really kind of are on your own a little bit more than I think if you've been here for generations. You don't have the, you know, the roots that people that have uh, lived here for generations have. So, I mean, I was I was uh, I mean, I don't want to make you you make it sound very sexy. (laughs) I can tell you that. when I was in my early 20s, um, I wanted to get a job and make a living. And that was my prime motivation, you know, behind um, doing what I did. And actually, um, you know, from a very young age, I was around entrepreneurs. I'm sure you were as well, being in an immigrant kind of community. A lot of people end up doing their own businesses. And I always it always appealed to me because it was something that I saw. And it was something that I figured that I could do because I saw other people around me doing it. Um, and I think that's important for a kid. Like if, if you're, if you grew up in a family of doctors or lawyers, I mean, you see other people in that role and you can model um, yourself into that role. So I had a lot of um, people around me that were in business and, you know, on very, um, on different levels, I, you know, had an uncle that owned a Persian carpet store. I think every Persian has a um, uncle that owns a carpet store. And I had, a you know, my dad and my other uncle had um, convenience stores, um, So, you know, on a very kind of micro level, I was around that type of business and um, it appealed to me because it was something I thought that I could do. And, you know, when I was 21, um, I was in my last year of university. And I remember, you know, looking for work. I was was studying um, business at York University um, at Atkinson College and I was looking for a job. And I and I finally got an interview at Royal Bank. And uh, I was so excited because you know, that they were the only callback that I got. Um, and so I went to the interview. And you know, the interviewer asked me a bunch of questions about myself and what I wanted to do. And I, and I answered everything really honestly. Um, you know, and by the end of the interview, she kind of said to me, look, uh, I can't really offer you this job because you're, you're just too ambitious for this. It was for a teller position at the bank. Um, you know, and of course, I was devastated because I figured like, you know, a university degree, I was, I was a credit or too shy of my finishing my degree. I figured like, man, if I can't get a teller job, um, you know, with my business degree, uh, I, I was just really down about it. And I, and I remember, um, you know, going home and, and I said to my mom, like, you know, I couldn't get a job at this place. I'm just really down. I don't know if I should, um, you know, go back to school next year. I don't really want to go to school. I didn't even want to go to university in the first place. I kind of, I kind of did it for my parents. Um, and then she's like, well, why don't you come and work with me? And at the time, you know, she had a, uh, like a little med spa in, in Richmond Hill. And um, that was my first taste of the industry. So I, I went in there for about six months and I helped her with, you know, her brochures, her marketing, anything that I could help with. Um, and I kind of started to really like it in terms of, I saw a lot of potential and and growth in the industry. Um, So after about six months, you know, I said to my dad, I want to go do my own thing. Um, And he kind of gave me a little bit of money for uh, a printer and a a computer or or a desk, or sorry, a chair and a printer. Um, So I had a little home office in my my basement and I was living at home with my parents. And I kind of just started, um, you know, cold calling doctor's offices i didn't know what what to do um and that kind of led to me asking doctors what they were looking for and what they wanted and me kind of starting to shape an idea in my head of what my business could be so much credit to obviously my parents because again you when you see people accomplish something and you know they're close to you you figure that you can do it as well so you model you know you can model those things and you know my mom and dad my mom was was an incredible, she's an incredibly fearless person, you know, um, she doesn't care what other people think. She just does her thing. And, you know, if people don't like it to hell with them, like that's kind of, you know, she's a very loving, sweet, kind person, but she doesn't let other people's opinions, you know, dissuade her. And I think that's as an that's entrepreneur, great.
0: but that's a, I, that's a great point about a quality of somebody who's an entrepreneur and succeeds because, there's probably a million reasons why you shouldn't have succeeded. Right. Right. And right. A, lot of, 100%. a lot of them legitimate. And, um, and then quite frankly, probably a lot of people that didn't want to see you succeed. And so, you, yeah. Oh, you I might mean, be able to I, overcome that. And I agree. That, that's a question for, for you is you know, how do you overcome all of that?
1: You know, that's a really interesting, what you just said, I think is, um, is a challenge for anybody who wants to do anything anything uh, you know business ideas any anything even like a scientist for example who's trying something new i think you run into all kinds of criticism um no matter what you want to do and i always tell people my friends that the one of the biggest traits that you can have to help you succeed in business is to be a little bit naive and the reason for that is you don't overthink things, you know, it, you t- if you if you take things down to a very simple level, um, you know, it's, it's simple. It's like I want to start a business and this is what I'm going to do to get there. But if you start overthinking things, people can come up with all kinds of reasons as to why you're going to fail. Um, so having, you know, kind of that that young, naive attitude, because I was only 21 not feeling like you have nothing to lose is important. Um, and, And that's something that I think you can keep with you as you grow older. You know, you don't want to get you don't want to be jaded by people who tell you that you can't accomplish things because for the most part, fear is what drives people's decision making in terms of what they do for their career. So a lot of people because they're a lot of people are scared if they're going to make a living. So they choose they want to choose something that gives them some form of a guarantee you know, as to how they're going to put, you know, food on the table. Um, and so an entrepreneur, in a sense, is like you're too stupid to be, to be scared sometimes <laughs> because you haven't thought it through. Um, so I think if I actually sat down and I thought through what I was doing, I wouldn't have done it. But because it was just I was doing it and I was doing it slowly, it's almost like it just I let it happen. You know, I actually remember that for like three to four months, nobody would talk to me. Um, so I'd get a lot of people hanging up the phone. And I and I actually, I have a distinct memory of the first kind of guy that spoke to me. Um, he was a doctor in Toronto named Dr. Herman. I don't even know what he's doing that way. This was like 18 years ago. But <laughs> he's like, hey, you know, um, I'm like, what you what are you looking for? And he's like, well, you know, I'm looking for this kind of a laser. I remember he said to me, and I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to get you that laser. Like I'm going to find it for you. (laughs) So, you know, I went out and started looking for it and actually I never ended up doing the deal with them, but it led me down a different avenue as you know, what I was doing. And I decided that I was going to get into lasers um, for hair removal. And it was because of that conversation kind of. Um, And then once I went down that road, you know, after um, six months, then I was able to get the rights to this um, line of lasers that was made in California that was called laser scope at the time. And at that point I was like, okay, now I have a business. Like I have the distribution for this line and okay, now, I now I have like a focus, uh, as opposed to a few months ago, I was just kind of calling people being like, can I, can I sweep your doors, you know, your front step. <laughs> um, and so at that point, you know, started working and, um, my, my best friend, uh, Kasha, um, you know, he was working in like this really boring, uh, GIS job which is like mapping for you know they like draw the lines on digital maps and um you know he was losing hair over it so I told him why don't you come and um you know work with me and he's like you know the next day he um like quit so it took a lot you know it took a lot of uh took a lot of balls on his part too to give up because at that time you know all, you know my friends my family anybody that was around and you know we had mutual friends was like what are you doing are you sure you want to do you have like a good job you want to quit and go work with Ario with selling, you know, God knows what, like, you know, we had a bunch of people telling them that and people were telling me that the whole time, including, you know, very um, close family members and stuff, you know, the people that were in my circle. Um, but, you know, I had nothing else to do. So like it was either that or I'd have to go and become a teller. And I already tried that and I couldn't get that job. So this was kind of it for me. So Ari, that's the late nineties, right? what um so that was that was 2001 up until about so we you know lasers for us was our meal ticket for about five years four years yeah and what did, um
0: what did you see in the aesthetics world that made you think that i got an opportunity here there's something that i can do particularly with thermal fillers
1: yeah fact, i mean so, that so was early, right
0: that was that was in the early
1: that early. was just, when i started at working at my mom's place that was just the beginning of wrestling so i remember you know wrestling had just come out and it was like a huge deal because you know previous to that it was collagen so and you know collagen was terrible and some people liked it but a lot of there's a lot of issues with it allergy testing it didn't last as long so wrestling had just kind of busted onto the scene. And it was the very beginning of that. And so, you know, I was around it at, and at the time I really liked it because I would see it was addictive. Like people would get the treatment done and then they were like addicted to it. Like they never stopped. So to me, it was like, you know, gambling or any of the other vices. <laughs> people um, tended to keep doing it once they did it. Almost like dyeing your hair. I could, I could see that it was, um, you know, one of those things that once you put it into your kind of uh, every routine, people would continue to do it. So, um, and at the time I wanted to get into that, but there was only wrestling and not much other stuff. So for four or five years, you know, we cut our teeth on on lasers and we, would, we were just saving our money because we were young and we were worried that, you know, what's next. So we weren't really going crazy spending the money. So we really saved it, you know a lot of the money in the company, um, hoping to reinvest it. And then in, you know, 2004, um, 2004, 2003, 2004, we were kind of like this laser game is really hard because, you know, doctors have to spend like a hundred grand on one of your systems. Um, and it's like feast or famine. You sell one, you know, and you don't sell another one for a year. It's not, it wasn't an easy business for us. And I always liked the consumable business because people have to reorder. So I'm like, I like fillers because they use it. They got to order it again. So every month they're ordering from you, it's easier to develop relationships with a physician. So um, at the time I went out and I um, found this company in Germany that was making, it was a a doctor out there that had developed this filler and I was able to negotiate a contract to get the global rights um, for the product. and so that's how the, our filler business started, really. You know, we, we registered that in Canada with, you know, with a file that was like this big back then. Now, if we tried to register it, you know, the most recent filing we did was probably like six or seven binders. But back then, Health Canada didn't know anything about fillers. So, you know, we were I was just looking on the Internet, really. And, you know, I found his website, sent him an email. And then a few a month later, I flew out to um, Germany uh, to meet him. And so, I remember so you, you just cold
0: called them just like, just like you're cold calling the doctors initially. Yeah. You just had, yeah. you had no I qualms. Was like, Where
1: are you? You know, and I was like, I'm coming, I'm coming to see you. At that point, you know, it was kind of the wild, wild west. We didn't know anything about fillers. You know, that was when I don't know if you remember, Arjang, but there was like products with plastic beads in them. There was products with, you know, that were permanent. There were people were putting silicone. Mm-hmm. I mean, doctors were anything they could find to shove into someone's face, they were doing it. So it was like, we didn't know what was good, what was bad. And at that time I just saw that it was hyaluronic acid and I'm like, okay, that's what I want. And, um, you know, I, and I'm, I'm sure RJ and I, we've had this conversation, but our, that first product that we got was the absolute worst product that was on the market, you know, and we didn't know any better. Um, so once we got it registered, we started, you know, selling it and we started realizing, you know, and it's, it's a hard, it's a tough pill to swallow as an entrepreneur. Um, when you know that something that you're selling is not good. Um, but I think you can, you can use that in two different ways. I mean, I think you can say to yourself, okay, this is crap. I'm going to give up or I'm going to fix this because now, I, now I know what people want. I know what's wrong with this. I'm going to try to fix it. So in 2004, 2005, we we're like, this is an issue. And we started looking at bringing the R&D and the manufacturing in-house because um, we knew that there was no future with this kind of German company. Um, and, you know, by 2007, um, we, did it, we struck a deal with the University of Toronto and their pharmacy department to help us with research in, um, for dermal fillers. So you know, at the time, we had no idea um, what we were going to get with the university, but that was our only option. So we started paying them, you know, monthly, and they would do research, and then if they were, if they were supposed to give us information on whatever new that they found, um, that, that's and, you know, a, really after about a year, we didn't get anything out of them. So. That,
0: that's a really interesting point that you bring up because. I don't I don't know that that's a normal response for most people. I mean given that you invest in this initial product and then you have the um you know the the ability to critically analyze yourself and where things are going and recognize that this isn't necessarily the best thing for you and I think I think many people the natural instinct is no matter what to continue down that path and convince yourself that 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 is the right product and what you're doing is the right way but okay. you did something that's actually very difficult you were you had that ability to be self-critical in what you're doing and especially with something that's that you've invested a lot in financially and emotionally I recognize mm-hmm. that you needed to change gears and go a different direction I, yeah. I think that's that's actually yeah.
1: a it was hard. It was really hard, a really hard um, thing to do. Obviously, you you've invested into something, and I remember, you know, my mom's clinic was using it, and they were, She's like, "Look, man, this stuff is it's not good," and I'd get so angry. I'd be like, "You're not you're not injecting it right, or you're not doing this right," you know, because <laughs> I was so invested in it. And at a certain point, I'm like, "Look, you know, you have to come to terms with, you know, and that that's how the, our business had always been, though. You know, if we if we ran into an obstacle." we tried to go around it or pick a different path. Um, so, you know, early days, I mean, at the beginning, it was just me. And then it was just me and Kasha. Yeah. And then we slowly yeah. started adding, you know, staff, um, I think back in 2000, we had like four or five people, mostly people like in, we had a graphic designer, a secretary, um, and, it, you know, that was it yeah. really, and, you, know, you know, we used to do everything ourselves. Uh, this is just a warning to anybody who wants to work with the university in a, in a research capacity, you have to be very careful who you pick. Um, I think there's some really good you know, universities in Canada, Waterloo. Um, it was one of them when I was looking. I remember at the time, Waterloo had a great program for R&D. Um, U of T, it was a disaster. Um, their, their whole R&D focus is like, they'll do research on what they want. And if somehow along the way, they get some crumbs for you, they kind of throw them at you. Um, and then whatever they develop, they keep all the IP. So we realized like after a year, you know, we're like, you know, did you guys figure anything out? Like, do you have anything for us? And they, they weren't giving us any information. So I started calling around um, because I wanted to get a scientist to go in and kind of audit them to tell me, cause I didn't, I don't know. Um, you know, I barely, I, ba- I barely made it through uh, high school chemistry. So um, <laughs> I didn't, I wasn't going to go do it. So we had um, we found this guy in the U.S. that um, he was actually like the messiah of our business. You know, I can't give this guy enough accolades. Um, he he was just he just resigned from his you know, director position at a very large uh, medical device pharma company where he was specializing in hyaluronic acid. And I just so happened to get his phone number. I gave him a call and he's like, yeah, I can help you, you know, fly me down. <clears throat> So I flew him to um, Toronto. He was from Boston, and then we sat down and had lunch together. And my, my initial impression of this guy was like, "Oh my God, this guy's so obnoxious!" You know, like I I don't know if I can work with him. Um, and you know, again, never judge a book by its cover. I mean, I ended up um, this guy ended up becoming in so many ways just a model of a human being for me, like in terms of his character as a person but like my first impression of him was like, there's no way that I can, I can work with him. He was just very um, short. He'd said things like it was, he had no filter, you know what I mean? Um, and I, by the end of the meeting, I was like offended. And so, cause he was like, he was pretty much saying to us like who the hell do you guys think you are? <laughs> um, but I said to Kasha, I'm like, I don't think we can hire this guy, you know? And, but we had no choice. Um, he was the only person and he was qualified and you know, So we sent him into the, to the U of T um, lab. And then after a day and a half, they threw him out. The the professor kicked him out because again, no filter, you know, probably was calling her out on whatever she was doing. And he, and he came out and he's like, guys, listen, they're not doing anything for you. You're wasting your money. Um, She doesn't even know what she's doing in regards to HA. Like, I don't even, I don't think you guys have gotten anything out of her. Um, but he's, but he's like the postdoc that works with her. She's a very, she's brilliant and she wants to leave. So, you know, if you guys want to hire her, it's a good opportunity. So I said, well, what about you? And he's like, you know, what about me? And I said, well, w- will you work with us too? Cause like, he's like, well, I'm in Boston. I said, well, don't worry about it. Like, we'll figure something out. Like, you know, so we ended up hiring the postdoc and him. Um, and then now we had to go find a lab. Because I had we had nowhere to put them, so I kind of we hired both of them. And we sat them in our little office and we said, "Can you guys just you know read some books?" Um, and we're gonna go find a lab. I was like, "How hard could it be to find a lab?" Um, because at the time, <laughs> at the time, uh, U of T had a partnership with Mars, which was like a incubator. Um, so I'm like, and and when I went down there, Mars was probably eighty percent empty. What year so was this, you?" This was 2007 2008 so it was it was just completely empty i'm thinking it's going to be a piece of cake to get into mars um so we went there and i called i kept calling and emailing and calling and they just completely ghosted me you know like they wouldn't they wouldn't return my call so i actually got in my car and i went down there one day um and i said to the lady i'm like you guys are like this place is empty you know I was like why can't you give us 500 square feet and she pretty much told me that the professor had blocked them from giving us, giving me space there because we canceled our research deal with them. Wow. So at that point, I was like, oh my God, you know, I got these two people. We had no money um, coming in because we, I was spending a ton of money on the, on the head researcher and the postdoc. Um, you know, we were selling that product out of Germany, which was a disaster. And we were, we were trying to get out of that. Uh, and I'm like, we're dead. You know, what are we going to do? Um, so I just got back on the phones and I started calling and calling. And then one day I um, I called this Markham kind of business center. And the guy on the other line said, you guys should go to, you know, York University. There's um, a, la- a company there that has a lab and they'll rent you uh, some space. And I'm like, perfect. So we, I called them up. The guy's like, come to York and see the lab. So if anybody listening has gone to York, this was um, at the old Tennis Canada building. And it was like this dilapidated building that has now been torn down. But there was a company called FarmEng that had a, you know, 2,000 square foot lab in that building. And it was fully stocked with, you know, all kinds of equipment, everything we needed to do what we wanted to do. Um, So we went there, you know, the gentleman gave us a tour and, you know, I was so excited because it was like the first sign of hope that, you know, we were going to be able to do what we wanted to do. Um, And, you know, at the end of the tour, he kind of pulled me aside and said, you know, we're going bankrupt. Um, If you can take on the lease for this place and hire all the staff, that there was like five scientists working in there. (laughs) He said, I'll give you the equipment for pennies on the dollar. And my eye my eyes just lit up and you know I said, Yeah. Right, like right on the spot, of course. Um and I think we bought, you know, five hundred, six hundred thousand dollars worth of equipment for about thirty grand and we moved in.
0: <laughs> That's amazing.
1: Yeah. So so that those types of things I think no matter what people say um about you know working hard and you know the American dream and, you know, you need those types of little, those lucky moments to happen, Um, you know, to be able to be successful. You have to be optimistic and a little bit naive and not listen to, you know, obviously negativity, because if you do, there's a million reasons why you shouldn't do something. Um, And they're always mostly the same, you know, they're, they're centered around fear and failure. Um, So, and if you live your life that way, you know, you can't really do anything, right? Like anything you want to do, you can't do it. Um, So, I mean, that, I I think most entrepreneurs, they're not the most intelligent people, if you know what I mean. Because I think sometimes when you're intelligent, (laughs) you talk yourself out of things like this. Um, So that's why you see a lot of scientists, for example, they don't end up becoming, going into their own, like there are scientists that do, but you know they're brilliant why don't they patent their own technologies and take them to the next level is because a lot of times they have they overthink things you know they have those fears that oh, i don't know you know this could happen that could happen and i think traditionally as well people think that in order to start a business you need to go out and raise you know millions of dollars and and start here um so but i think the beauty of it in, in in business is starting from the bottom because you you really do all the work that is necessary to get to the top. You don't just end up at the top because you got a good job or something like that. I, I once heard, um, you know, somebody ask a, a famous musician who was a busker. Um, the guy was like a busker his whole life and then he ended up becoming famous. He said, you know, um, what advice would you give, you know, musicians now to kind of skip those steps so they can, they can be further ahead? So they don't have to do all the busking and all those things that you did. Like, what advice can you give them so they can be, they can start higher up? And he's like, my advice is don't skip those steps, you know, (laughs) because that's the beauty. The the journey is, you know, what's fun about it. Um, And I think the fact that we had to go and do all these little things and do the dirty work and kind of, that's what made it better, you know? So I don't think, I think a lot of times people try to skip those things. Um, you know, they go out and raise tons of money, um, and they have an idea, but then they become fixed on that idea because they've raised a ton of money to do it. So they're, they lose a lot of flexibility, um, and the journey, you know, all the, all those things that you learn along the way.
0: Yeah. And, and so the other part of this is it's, it, it must be a big stress for you personally going through this. I mean, we're, we're kind of listening to these, Lessons that you're learning professionally and some some real hard <laughs> lessons, and yeah. how do yeah, you separate absolutely. from from kind of your personal life and kind of make sure it doesn't affect you personally?
1: Yeah, yeah, like I've, I've yeah. So so I have um I have three three boys. My boys are uh, five years old, uh, twelve and and fourteen. Um, so one of the biggest, obviously. Uh, biggest stresses I had was when when my twelve year old was about three years old he um kind of got really sick and um you know it was a huge shock to me because he ended up getting diagnosed with you know anxiety disorders um he eventually was diagnosed with autism mm-hmm. that for me was like like a knockout punch um you know because at the time I was I think for a father, it's a very difficult thing when their son, when you, when you think that your son's not going to be able to accomplish the things that you did or be able to do the things that you wanted them to do. It's like a shift in your thinking. So for me, when my son was, was sick, it was like, I almost kind of put my business on hold a little bit. Um, and that's the, the part of my personality that wants to like, achieve things and get results and like solve problems, I, I focused it on him. Um, so there was like a three or four year lull in kind of my creativity in the business, I think, because I was like, so intensely focused on him um, yeah. when he was kind of going through the worst of it. And how do you and, get you know, how, do like you, researching how do and, you research? Know,
0: how do you work? through that? Cause that is just such an you incredible know, I, I stress.
1: Lived, it's hard. It was hard. Yeah. And um, how do you, you lived,
0: how do you not kind of just put all your energy into that? I mean, you gotta, at some point you gotta decide that you're going to, it was
1: it, that those like, there was like five years of, of uh, four or five years of my life. And he was born in 2008 that, um, you know, I wasn't sleeping at all. Like I was probably sleeping like a couple hours a night um, because he wasn't sleeping. So I was up with him. And it's actually funny that you, you know, when you realize how little sleep you need (laughs) to get by, I'm pretty sure you've probably gone through medical school, but um, that was the first time in my life where I'm like sleeping two, three hours a night, you know, and going to work the next day. Um, But I, I, it it gave me a sense of purpose in the sense where I was like, okay, now I need to work. I want to work harder. I really want to make this successful because, you know, I want to do it for him. I want to do it for my kids, obviously um so he was kind of a motivation to me in that sense like you know at the beginning i was very um and i'm an i'm an incredibly optimistic person you know like it takes a lot to shake me like it takes a lot to make me negative about anything and you know there was moments where i was like man there's nothing i can do to help him and um with that, but then you know i would push myself through it and, um, you know, now I'm happy to say he's doing a lot better. Um, you know, obviously he's grown up a lot. He's 12 now. He's doing a lot better. But um, that was probably the biggest um, challenge that I went through in, inside the company, inside my life um, at the time. And, you know, it brought me, when, once I got to the other side of it, I, I feel like I'm better because of it. You know, I think he's, he's made me better in like every way uh, dealing with those challenges uh, and then, you know, we've had other um, there's been other issues where we've had people inside the company that, you know, were early hires um, that we hired because they were friends, of family um, and stuff. We had like a huge theft that was going on um, at the very beginning of our business um, where over a million bucks was kind of stolen from from the company. Wow. That was a huge challenge. But, you know, again, that was another thing where once it was done, we came out on the other side by developing like an inventory management system and becoming more professional because of it, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I feel like all these little things that happened, they've happened to kind of push us and, you know, make us better as people or as, as a business or whatever. So. Yeah. I'm so, not sure that was the question. I don't know. Yeah. I, I mean, to it, yeah, no, it was. Yeah, for
0: sure. Yeah. So are you now you're, you're this global brand. I mean, let's fast forward. And um, you're in so many different countries. I think I read somewhere that you're in 80 countries. Um, mm-hmm. I know you do a lot of business overseas. Uh, what do you see the difference between the markets that are overseas, um, like in Asia and India versus North America? You, you you have a very unique perspective on the aesthetic world. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, do you see differences?
1: Um, you know, When we when we first started, fillers in Canada and the US were very kind of new. But at that point, they'd already been in Europe and other markets for five to 10 years, um, HA fillers in particular. So there was always wider acceptance of these products in European countries, Middle Eastern countries, which is which is interesting because I always find the countries that are more male dominated the women tend to spend, this was back in the day, the women tended to spend more on their face. Like Middle Eastern countries, the amount that women spent in like Saudi Arabia, in Iran, in in these places, would dwarf, you know, what people were spending here. So when we started, we were selling in those places because the demand was high. So we we really didn't start properly selling in Canada until 2010, 2011. That was after we built our factory and we had our own, product here Um, but it took a while to get to this point you know but if it wasn't for the international market we wouldn't have been able to build our facility here so to answer your question there was more acceptance in those countries um, at the beginning also the definition of beauty in in a lot of those places was that more is better so you know if you go to some of these places they want to be plumped up and um, so they were using more product, whereas in North America back then it was, you know, Canadians in particular, very conservative. They want subtle, they wanted subtle. And fillers were kind of only being used in nasolabial fill lines. They weren't really using them for contouring and those things back then. So the market here was was limited, And, I, and but now it's it's changing. So we've seen, you know, huge growth in Canada and the US where people are starting to do those things that they've been doing in other places. Um, And there's more, there's more acceptance. People talk about the treatments, they're on social media, you know, saying what they got done. Whereas when I started, it was a big secret. If you got anything done, you wouldn't talk about it. But in a lot of these other countries, when you got something done, everybody knew you got something done because you went bigger, you went, you know, you didn't do it. Um, But so here I think people are starting and and I'm sure you're noticing this in your practice. I think people are more aware and they're more open to, you know, admitting they've had things done or being open to talking about it with other people, yeah. whereas it wasn't always the case.
0: Do you, do you see that there are global influences? Uh, my I, I guess my my question is, my sense is that the North American market, maybe this is just my bias being in North America, but that the North American market drives A lot of the standards and what's happening is that true or do you think that these Um, are all happening regionally and they're irrespective of one another
1: so i think there's hot spots for beauty um, in the world i mean france has always kind of been one of the leaders in terms of in beauty and i think french women generally if you go back they've kind of been trailblazers in a lot of things um so that's been one hotspot. I think one of the emerging hotspots now is South Korea. Um, you know, we're seeing a huge um, number of new South Korean biotech companies and beauty companies. Um, I think in South Korea, there's there's 10 different neurotoxins that are made in South Korea. Um, you know, there's filler companies, there's, there's um, cosmetics companies there that we don't, um, unfortunately in Canada and the US the government doesn't really support these types of industries here. Whereas there it's become like a policy point for the government to push these industries. So that's definitely become a huge hotspot for this industry. The U S because of the regulatory hurdles and the, and the amount of time that it takes to get to market are they usually are late adopters of technology. So they, you know, wrestling was in Canada four or five years before it got to the States. And that's just because the fda is very difficult compared to other regulatory bodies the thing about the u.s is that the physicians and the country is so highly respected that once doctors in the u.s start doing things they catch on in other places as well um but yeah definitely you know there's hot spots for beauty Uh, unfortunately canada hasn't really been one of them Um, and i think in north america we're the only Ha manufacturer in all of North America that produces in North America.
0: Okay, so tell us what is the deficiency in the aesthetic world right now? What do you what do you see as being the area that's being neglected, and where are the opportunities?
1: Um, you and I kind of spoke a little bit about uh, some of the stuff we're doing, but you know, w- when I look at it, um, I think one area is biostimulation. So, not just filling the skin, but how do we what do we put in the skin to help your body produce new collagen and create new tissue and, and your so that your body's doing some of the work. Um, you know, that's an area that I think is going to become more and more important now that, you know, fillers have kind of reached, I think they're 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 probably at the height of their technological advancement with HA. I don't know how much more you can do with HA. So I think you, you want to start adding biostimulatory ingredients to it. So things like polylactic acid, uh, polycaprolactone, PDO, things that will stimulate your skin to produce tissue. So there's that. I think the body is a deficiency. There's really no proper body filling product. We have a product now that we're, we've we been working on for a few years. Um, I think that's going to be huge in the next 10, 15 years. Um, and then, you know, we talked a little bit about threads. So there's some new types of threads that are made of biostimulatory materials like PDO. Um, I think that's going to become very important, um, but definitely there's a there's a a few areas that it could go in. Um, we're very kind of bullish on on the body and on biostimulatory products. So those are two areas that um, we've been working on a lot, and um, we're hoping to have some products very soon.
0: Yeah, that, that's exciting stuff.
1: I'm glad you're telling us. <laughs> yeah, I mean we. So, I mean, we've been working. And I mentioned to you, we've been working on the body product for a few years, and we have a 10 ml body product, but we don't have the approvals for the body yet. So, yeah. it's sold, you know, under under a facial indication, um, but we're hoping that we can do the studies and the work to get that approved. We've already started a lot of that work with a plastic surgeon uh, in Toronto, Dr. Sean Rice, that's been helping us. So,
0: yeah. And what's next for you? So you've, 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 you've built yeah, this I great mean, company. You've I got have... some great, great, uh, great advancements and developments. You just, what's next?
1: Yeah, I mean, for, um, for me, what I enjoy um, is exactly what we were just talking about, all the new stuff. Like the creative side of the business is what I like. I think if I ever felt that, that I couldn't do that anymore, then I probably would want to do something else. Um, but right now I'm having a lot of fun doing this. And, you know, we're, we're doing so many things that, um, you know, we, I have, I have some excitement for the next four or five years. Uh, and we've had, I mean, we've had a, a few offers to sell the company. Um, you know, we, we had one a few years ago that we were very close to signing that, and I'll tell you, this is kind of an interesting story. So we had an offer that was, you know, a ton of money. It was enough that, you know, my grandkids wouldn't need to work. And so we decided to do it. And, and I was always reluctant because I do enjoy what I do. And I was always kind of like, well, what am I going to do after this? And I was, I was, I was a little bit sad about it. Um, and I remember we started going down the the road of getting this deal signed. And, you know, during that process, you're kind of getting to know the other company's CEO and, you know, you're figuring out what you're going to do when they transition. And, you know, as we got to know the CEO of this company, I just was like, there's no way that I can work for this guy. There's no way that I can do it. I'm going to be mis. I don't care how much money he's giving me. Like, I would rather not do this and be, I, I'm going to be miserable. So I told Kasha, I'm like, in literally a couple days before we were, you know, supposed to sign the deal. I'm like, Kasha, I can't do it. And he's like, okay. I mean, I, you know, if you can't do it, you can't do it. And then we, and we backed out. And I got this really nasty, you know, text message from the CEO of the other company, like pretty much telling me to go to hell. And I'm like, you know, best, best wishes, you know, I decided against it. Um, And and it's crazy, you know, sometimes you got to trust your gut. So a couple weeks after that happened, Kashi gave me a call and he said, did you see the news? And I'm like, what happened? And he's like, well, the company that was going to buy us, they just got shut down by the European Union because there was contamination in the product. Two weeks after that, they got shut down by the FDA. Two weeks after that, their factory burnt down in Brazil. Oh my goodness. So we the like 80% of the deal we had with them or 60% of the deal was in stock. The stock was around 20 bucks when we were going to do the deal. By the time the factory burnt down, the stock was like a dollar. Wow! So if we would have done that, we would have lost everything. You know, we would have lost everything because by the time we signed, to the time that they went under, it would have been, we would have just completely lost our pants. Like we would have lost our shirt, done, out of business. So the, my gut was telling me not to do it and I didn't do it. And, you know, thank God because we kept going and I think we've done great things since then. But, you know, I would recommend to people never do stock deals, just just cash. Yeah. <laughs> never do stock yeah. Deals. yeah.
0: I mean, that that's a great, you know, you you ask yourself, I mean, your history is full of instances where there seems to be some kind of serendipitous thing that's kind of helped you out and uh, i mean you've certainly put a ton of work into it but but you're right like you've you've got a lot of gut instincts that have worked out don't you think
1: yeah i agree and i I mean i don't want to make it sound like there's some hocus pocus involved in all this but (laughs) you know um I think when, you, when you're when you intimately involved in your business and what you're doing, there's things that you know that you just can't explain to other people. And like other people just don't know about what you're doing or how you're feeling. And I think that's your gut. It's like the things that you can't express into words that you just feel. Um, I don't think it's some like magical, you know, wandering hand or spirit that's helping you through things. But again, as as you mentioned, just getting up every day and dealing with the issues and getting through it is enough to give yourself another chance at whatever you're doing in life. And in the business is like that, you know, so something happens, you know, you either can decide, I'm gonna get around this and I'm gonna fix it, or I'm gonna give up. And you know, when you're depending on something for your living, you can't give up, because <laughs> that's what's paying the bills. Um, so I, I really don't like when people try to say that they built things on their own or they did something on their own, because I think it minimizes the other people in your life that supported you through it you know um like I think everybody who's who makes it there's like a million people behind them that that kind of push them um forward and I so and I think those people kind of get ignored you know when the when you make it you want to make it sound like it's this big sexy story but I mean there were so many people involved in getting us to where we were you know important people that um you know we wouldn't have been able to do it without them and the support that we got like so everybody who's if anybody's listening they know who they are um but there's been so many people that um we stood on their shoulders to to make it to this point so this is this is the embarrass. this is going to be the embarrassing part of the <laughs> no i usually um so i usually get up in the morning um and i drive my kids to school yeah Oh, i get up 7 seven thirty. i drive my kids to school and then um I'll I'll come back home and I'll, you know, I'll usually get a coffee and I'll spend about half an hour just kind of reading my emails and the news. Um, And then I'll try to try to get a workout in, which I haven't done for a couple of weeks. Um, I'll try to get a workout in and then um, I'll kind of roll into work and and do some emails from home and I'll kind of roll into work at around 11 noon. Um, (laughs) So that's, I hate admitting that because it sounds lazy, but in the morning, I I, I kind of need that uh, time to kind of decompress and think about things, and and I find that if I do my emails in the morning and return phone calls, when I get to work, I can't do that because people are coming and going the whole time. Um, so I kind of cherish that hour or two at home in the morning um, before I go in. And then it, usually I work until about five six, and then uh, come home and, and Kasha and I we uh, spend spend an hour every day. Um, you know talking about nonsense and then the rest of the time we're working so yeah I, I usually go through them and whatever i can answer right away i answer right away um so i can just get it out of my yeah. off my plate yeah um and then anything that i can't that's when I, that's the, those are the ones that i'll fire off to other people or when i get to work i'll i'll try to go and address them um but it becomes load management um when so i mean like now we have um 140 employees And for me to, if I was to deal with all those things, then I'd be writing emails all day. So part of it is you got to trust other people to handle things, Um, you know, and you got to be able to let go of things, which which is hard for a lot of um, entrepreneurs because you're like doing something for like 10 years and, you know, you suck at it, but you've been doing it. And then, you know, you know, you need somebody better and you find that person. And then it's like kind of hard to just like, let go of it and let them handle it
0: and what brings your stress oh, okay. down are you what I'm is sorry? what is it that brings your stress down you're such a calm guy i mean i'm, I'm just amazed at how you deal with these things and uh, you know, the such biggest, a, which is I'll such you, a level I'll, head. I'll the,
1: the most stressful thing that i've ever been through in my business was um the covid shutdown that for me was um kind of like the, it was a devastating thing because I'd never been through it and I didn't know what to expect. Like all of a sudden we were working and then the other day, the next day they're like everything shut down, go home and you know, all the clinics shut down. I mean, I'm sure you guys were shut down. There was no sales coming in. You know, we had to close down our clean room and our manufacturing. It was just, I was, I was scared. I, that was the one time in my business that I was like, oh my God, you know, I had, we have all these people on payroll. Um, 60 sales reps that were paying, all these people that were paying. Um, you know, I knew that we could do that for a few months before we were like bankrupt, but you don't know how long it's going to last. And I've been through economic slowdowns before, like recessions, and, but, but this one was one of those things where, you know, I didn't know what to expect. It was completely out of left field. So um, that was the most stressed I've ever been.
0: Yeah. And what, but you know, in your life, what do you do to get past that stress though?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, um, I think, again, I'm not a very optimistic person. I know that eventually I always have this feeling that eventually the ship will be righted. And I think if you focus on the big picture, you know, that can happen. But if you start getting into the weeds a lot and you know, that's when you start to get stressed out. So I've always been the type of person, I don't, I don't like getting in the weeds. Um, so I, I kind of let people get in the weeds, but I don't want to get in the weeds. So, but, I, but I think if you look as, a, as, a, as an individual, if you think big picture, like, okay, like this, is, this can't last forever. You know? um, so let's just get through it. But generally, I've been through far worse things in, in my life that you know, even my business closing down is not going to kill me. So that's kind of the way that I look at it. I'll survive, hopefully, <laughs> we are I, I would say that we're very, uh, we're not non-traditional type of company. We're very flat. Um, you know, it's kind of like a family atmosphere. A lot of the people that have been working there have been there for over 10 years. Um, you know, we treat people like individuals and not just a number because a lot of these people helped us. You know, get to where we are. So I would say working at our at ProLenium is, you know, it, there's work to do, but you know, it's we let people have a lot of autonomy and um, handle their own business, as opposed to micromanaging and doing that. And it's a very flat organization. Like I talked to everybody that works there, all the way down to, you know, the, the 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 lowest paying job to the highest paying job. Like I've done them all, and so I have respect for what they do and what they bring to the company um so i'm i'm able to have we're able to have you know relationships there's there's no like class structure inside our company at all
0: <laughs> yeah what cause ario you? what's your what's your personal cause that I mean you know I, that hits you and near and dear as, i'm sorry what's the personal cause that hits you near and dear to your heart
1: i mean uh, so you know you and i we both uh, grew up as bahais i mean one of them obviously is religious persecution um Racism, intolerance—those are things that you know I grew up with, um, and they were kind of—they're uh, always in my life. So naturally, I, I have an opinion about them and I have feelings about them. That's, you know, that's one thing that kind of—you um, know—I have a lot of uh, opinions for. Mm-hmm. And so, in the way that you know we run our company, we try to—we've always had an incredibly multicultural staff. Um, that you know represents different countries different religions and you know tolerance has always been like something that has been very important in our in our in our workplace so
0: yeah I mean that's that's such an interesting kind of point that you make and you know being a minority growing in the GTA I I remember growing up and how and, and I'm sure you're very much like this but I'm sure you were very much had the same experience but growing up we were so self-conscious of our names and about our differences and yeah. no one wanted to be like us and and the past number of years it actually seems like it, it things really have changed and the aesthetic yeah. sense of the general um i wouldn't even say the aesthetic world but people's general standards of uh, aesthetics really. have really expanded and now uh, people do yeah. tend to recognize beauty in different ethnicities in a way that was so different than when we grew up and our experience growing up. Wouldn't you say that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I agree 100%. I mean, things about ourselves, even like I I was always kind of waiting for Harry Chess to come back in style. (laughs) But, you know, (laughs) who knows when that will be. But I think generally, you know, there was things about myself that I didn't like growing up because, you know, what I would see on TV and places was usually like a white guy. Not that there's anything wrong with that. It was just that was the majority. And then as I started getting older, I started to just be like, yeah, you know, I kind of like the fact that I have a lot of hair. You know, now I kind of wear a beard every day. You know, things that, and and so I've, I've, you, you start to love yourself, uh, I guess as the older you get, but I, I also think beauty is based on what you see, you know? So as ideas change and people become more tolerant to other, you know, races and cultures, you're gonna start, people are gonna start seeing these people you know different ethnicities on tv and in movies and that then they start oh this is beautiful like perfect example is the kardashians i mean that's a typical middle eastern to me looking woman so um and i think you credit the kardashians for that and that's something that when i was growing up wasn't beautiful you know and now it is
0: yeah it's really super interesting how how society evolves and it brings with it our aesthetic sense
1: absolutely yeah
0: absolutely <laughs> well um, I'd like to really thank you for joining us Ario this has been terrific as, a, oh, as
1: thank a you guys I had a great time yeah I a, so much. <laughs> well no I
0: mean we I, I learned a ton talking to you I mean I've known you for for ages and I don't think I really appreciated a lot of the things that you went through and so it, it, this has been a fantastic um, time for us to chat with you. And uh, thanks, so thanks much for, for joining me. us.
1: A lot of
0: fun. All right. Now, thank-
1: now, I, I have to have a, now I have to have a Prelenium podcast and have you on it. So. <laughs> anytime. Anytime. <laughs> thank you so much, guys. I really appreciate it.
0: All right, Ariel. Take care okay. and good luck. Have a wonderful day. All right.
1: Take care. Bye.